morning. I'm Sandra Ewers, and it's a great day for a great day. I love that saying. So listen, we have been joined by an amazing guest. He's described as a poet, a lyricist, a writer, an activist, an actor, a musician. The possibilities are endless. I'd like to welcome the man himself, Mr. Benjamin Zephaniah. Thank you very much for coming on. <laughs> I love it. Thank you very much for joining us. But before before I ask you anything about your book, I want to know what have you been doing in lockdown and how have you sort of coped in the last year? Um, I, I always hesitate when I answer this question because I've actually coped okay and I consider myself quite lucky because I have a home with a lot of space. I have my gym. I live in an area where there is lots of space, lots of clean air. Um, I've been kind of mentally engaged, so yeah, I wrote a book, I wrote a play. Wow. I went to the TV programme for Sky. Um, and actually I've been probably busier than normal as well. I teach at university, so I've been teaching all my students online. So I've been okay. I did have one, just at the end of the last lockdown, I had one moment where I just woke up and went, no, I've got to see my mum. I've got to go see my mum, you know. I mean, I talk to her every day, more or less, but I just had this overwhelming urge to go and see her. Um, but on the whole, I've been okay. But And the reason why I kind of hesitated a bit is because people that haven't made it through the pandemic, my sister got COVID really badly, um, and her husband... I've lost friends, family, people who are well known, Ty the rapper, you know, Dale yeah. Washington, the reggae singer, um, Toots, Toots and the Maytales, um, Bob Andy, although the reggae singer, although he died of something else, um, you know, so, I mean, a couple of weeks ago, I went to two funerals in one week online, I mean, funerals online now, I mean, it's bizarre. Um, and I know lots of people who are stuck on the eighth floor in a council flat who have, haven't got a gym. They've got nowhere to go. Um, I got an email last night from a friend who just seems so desperate. The last time I spoke to him, which was like before lockdown, he was so happy. His career was going well. He was loving his martial arts. And now he told me that he's lost all his work. He's had to move back in with his mother. He's got nothing. I mean, it's just so... I always think about those people. It's not just about me. I've, I was, I've been really fortunate in a sense. It's really good to hear. I, I know it is a bit of a roller coaster for everybody, and, and you know I do appreciate things as well. And um, you know, thinking of the losses that you have had and all the people that we have lost along the way. Mm. Um, and I did forget to say, guys, if you are um, listening, if you ca can make sure that your your microphones are muted, and obviously at the end you'll be able to unmute to ask if you need to ask Benjamin a question. But Benjamin, listen, um, I've got your book here. I've oh, read one. it. Yeah, I've read it twice. It's The Life and Rhymes of Benjamin Zephaniah. Oh, I like that. This is my latest book. I, I shall be getting that shortly. And the funny thing is, uh, let's, t let's tell the viewers that just before we came on air, my phone rang, my, my um, door uh, <laughs> rang up. And for some reason, somebody's delivered me, sent me three copies of my own book. No name, no nothing. Not from You're you, are they? Not for me. You're gonna to have to share one of those copies. With me. You're definitely gonna to have to. Share one. I guess it's somebody that's probably gonna to write to me and say, "Can you sign them or something?" 
Right. So it was good timing anyway. But listen, look, your book, I mean, because I, I actually read this book and I even had it on, I read it once, then had it on Audible. It, it, was, it felt like you were in the room with me. When I was cooking, I'd had you talking to me in the kitchen. I was laughing. I was sad. I was happy. I was everything. But you, look, you were a young boy creating rhymes in your head. Your mum was also speaking in rhyme. But tell me, what is your love of poetry? And, you know, why do you love it so much, basically? It's interesting because... If I say I just love words and I love playing with words, um, to some people it can sound a bit wishy-washy, you know? I mean, we all use words. I also practice martial arts and um, I love Kung Fu and Tai Chi. And one of the key things to understand when you do Kung Fu or Tai Chi, or even yoga, and I mean real yoga, not just exercise yoga, is just how to breathe, right? And sometimes you get students or people who are learning and they go, well, I breathe all the time. You know, what's the point? You know, you, you, I'll just pay you £10 and you're telling me how to breathe, master. Actually, we kind of take it for granted and we don't breathe properly. And that happens sometimes with words. We use words all the time, but sometimes people don't understand the power of the words they're using and sometimes they don't use them properly. So that's the only comparison I make. I had this love of words when I was a kid. I used to love my family were from Jamaica and Barbados and they had a way of talking that had a rhythm in it and rhyme in it and the way they would tell you stories and I used to go to church and I know it's a little bit of a stereotype they talk about especially black girls going to church and singing in the choir and that's where they learn to sing you know there's so many black female singers and male that you they'll say I started in church well, for me, was the same, except that I wasn't looking towards the choir. I was looking at the preacher. And then I was looking at the way he would use repetition, the way he would use rhyme and the Psalms in the Bible, which is a kind of poetry, the way he would kind of perform them almost. And sometimes I used to think, you know, even if you don't believe this stuff, you know what I mean? It's so convincing <laughs> the way it's put over. And um, so I think I kind of took from that and the Anansi stories and the poetry of my mother in Jamaica. And I just loved it, and it's, it's, it's weird, but at one point I remember some members of my family thinking that I needed a child psychiatrist because I wasn't, I wasn't interested in toys. I was happy to sit there and um, just be nodding my head, making up rhythm and rhyme and stuff like that, and I just thought I was losing it. Um, you were certainly dedicated to that cause. But um, I've read some of your poetry, I've listened to some of your poetry, things like um, this policeman keeps kicking me me to death. I mean, when you, I've listened to it into music, I listen to it, you saying it a cappella. Um, it sends out a poignant message. What do you think about that message now? Is it relevant? Because obviously with everything that's happened recently, can you see the relevance in there? Oh, sadly, I mean, I wrote this policeman keeps on kicking me to death, I think in about 78, right, 1978. And um, I remember I went on, I went on one of the first black TV um, programs, um, Black on Black, with Trevor Phillips when he was a revolutionary. <laughs> and, um, and I did that poem. And because there were so few black people on television then, and when they came on, they tend to be doing their thing. Nobody came on and said, this is what happens to us in the police stations at night. And in, in those days, 
black people were just being beaten up by the National Front, beaten up by the police, nobody cared, you know. And so to have somebody perform that poem on primetime television, I remember trying to do some shopping in, in the West End the next day and I had to abandon it because people were just coming up to me and they saying, thank you. I actually had a couple of days later, somebody come up to me and he was literally in bandages from being beaten up by the police. And he said, that poem just kind of, when I tried to tell people what happened to me, they didn't believe me. And then they heard that poem and they went, oh, it makes sense now. I remember a bus driver driving through London. He stopped the bus and he come up and said, I don't care if I get sacked. I'm going to have to hug you. <laughs> you know. Um, so it was kind of very poignant then. It was very relevant then. And I kind of stopped performing it for many years. Then sadly, after the George Floyd incident, um, people started to, uh, to play it again. Um, people started to request it again. Um, which is very, very sad, you know, it's just the way it is. Um, and I always say to people, um, when we talk about George Floyd, it is relatively easy for some people because it happened over there in America where they've got guns and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, Christopher Elder, Sean Rigg, um, my cousin Mikey Powell, um, uh, Ibrahim Say, these are all black people who died at the hands of police. They weren't shot in, in Britain, you know? So we can't think that we are better or safer than them and that it wouldn't happen here. It's happening here. No, I, I certainly agree with you on that. And it's, um, you know, our thoughts go to obviously all the families that have lost uh, loved ones. Um, but the, the relevance of also Money Rant, um, you've got a poem called Money Rant. And with the lockdown now, with everything that's been happening, there's a lot of relevance with Money Rant about what's important to people and why money is important, but why it's not important at the same time. And we, the relevance of knowing what's important in lockdown. You, well, how would you, I mean, how would you describe your poetry? What, what are you trying to achieve with it in terms of, especially with Money Rant as well? Well, Money Rant, I think, is an eternal message as long as we have the kind of capitalist system that we have. Actually, I, I wrote it. I always tell my students that um, there is, you can, with, with Money Rant, it took me about an hour to write it, which is very short for such a long poem. But I was thinking about writing it for about two years. I happened to be, I don't know if you've heard of um, uh, Maynard Keynes. When we talk about the Keynesian economy, he was a guy that yeah. up. He said we must invest in infrastructure. We can't just measure our wealth by the money in the bank, which is quite revolutionary at the time, which kind of led to the kind of economy that could make the National Health Service and all that kind of thing. Um, I happened to become friends with his um, grandson, um, Simon Keynes at Cambridge University. And, um, and I remember talking to him and talking to a lot of other people about the economy and how it works. And then I realized that it only works because we believe in it. At one time, shells in the sea were the kind of currency at one time, shell, sh um, sh shells from the sea, I beg your pardon. At one time, salt was a kind of currency. <laughs> you know, in different parts of the world, different things have been currency. 
And, um, you know, on our money, we have a, a thing that says, I promise to pay the bearer the sum of. Up until quite recently, you could walk into a bank and say, I don't want this money anymore. Give me my gold. Nobody ever did it. <laughs> they, you know, they just trusted that you would hand the money on. And you, it, it, the system works because we believe in it. If somebody, if we stopped the world right now and said, right, okay, everybody pay back what they owe, there wouldn't be enough money in existence because most money now exists only on computers. And so I thought about all this stuff and I just thought, and then some people say, well, I'm, I'm working hard to earn a living. You know, and, they, and people talk about earning, you know, earning bread as it was. And I think, well, you can't eat money. You can't eat money. Um, and so it, I was thinking about it for a couple of years and then I just wrote it. And the Oxford Book of Money actually published that poem. They have this kind of annual book that comes out for um, economists and whatever. And I think it's the first time they've ever published a poem in there. It's, it's usually kind of hard facts and figures and statistics. Um, we have to find value in other things apart from money. And especially in this pandemic time, we've, we've realised that a lot of people found that they can't rely on money. And um, they've had to rely on friends, they've had to sometimes rely on charity, they've had to rely on love. Um, so that's what it's about. And, you know, when I'm writing poetry generally, I mean, I'm not really thinking, oh, you know, is this poem going to be relevant in 20 years' time? I'm writing about how I feel now and I'm trying to express the emotion that I have at the time. And sometimes it's just, it just has longevity, you know. There's another poem of mine called People Need People. To walk to, to talk to, to cry and rely on. People will always need people. To love and to miss, to hug and to kiss. It's useful to have other people. To whom will you moan if you're all alone? It's so hard to share when no one is there. There's not much to do when there's no one but you. People will always need people. And it goes on like that. I, I wrote it like 25 years ago or something. And then suddenly, because of the lockdown, I did it under one show and bang, it kind of went viral in its own way. And then me and some students at university did a music version of it. And people realised that we need people, <laughs> you know. <laughs> And I wrote it for an obscure little children's book I did years ago, and it just had a new life of its own. It kind of got rediscovered. Um, and I guess, I mean, people will judge me in years to come when I'm gone, but that's what poetry should do, I think. Pe poetry should kind of either be relevant all time at all times or be a reflection of what it used to be like, you know. Yeah. The thing with Shakespeare is that, I mean, I'm no Shakespeare expert, but I do know that um, when Shakespeare's work was being put on in his lifetime, people weren't over-analysing it the way we were doing it and sitting down and having to concentrate, because it was the language of the day. You know, it sounded like me, a bit brummy, probably a bit Jamaican, who knows. But <laughs> um, it was the language of the day. And so when we read poems now, I mean, if you say something like... I we went into the dance and the beats were kicking. Most people know what I'm talking about. But in a hundred years' time, somebody sit down, he walked into a dance. How can you walk into a dance? Isn't it a dance something you do? And the beats, the beats were kicking? What are you? <laughs> you know. Um, so in, in that sense, sometimes the language, language can change. But the sense of the poem will usually stay the same. I read poetry from all over the world. And it just makes sense because it's about 
I'm going to use a word that is a bit of a cliche, but it's kind of true. It's about the human condition, you know. And the great thing about poetry and literature is that you can be in Buckinghamshire, a black woman in Buckinghamshire, you can read the poetry of a woman in the watery plains of Bangladesh and just connect with it, you know, as a woman, as a human being. It's a great thing about what we do, you know. I love it. And the other thing I was, I was thinking that as well, they say that when people read poetry, sometimes we each interpret it how we want to. Yes. Um, but, but let me think about, I'm talking, thinking about your life as well. Um, you grew up in Birmingham, and, and I know that it wasn't easy for you all the time. Um, but looking back, when you think about yourself at a young age and all the things that you went through, how does that make you feel now when you, you look back on your life and compare? Did you ever think that you would get this far? Well, you read a story in my autobiography, right? which is absolutely true, when this guy comes to me and he says, um, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I said, and it was a thing called the Boys Brigade. And I don't know if any of your viewers will remember, I think, but I think it's still going, the Boys Brigade, but kind of getting boys to be kind of slightly military and kind of disciplined and stand up straight and wear a uniform. And this guy comes along and he says to all the boys, he said, what do you want to do when you grow up? And like a lot of boys, Somebody went, I want to be a policeman, I want to be a soldier, I want to be a fireman. And he came to me and he said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to be a poet. And he went, poet, poet, when was the last time you saw a poet skin a rabbit? <laughs> I've never seen anybody skin a rabbit. But um, I always knew what I wanted to be. All the things that I do now, I had a strong vision of me doing that when I was eight years old. A lot of it was invented because I didn't have any role models. I didn't see anybody else doing it. But I guess when I was about in my teenage years, adults around me said, come on, get real. Don't do this. You know, I remember my mother kind of saying to me once, um, you know, it's all right when you come down and you do poems at the breakfast table and all that stuff and you do poems in church. But listen, um, you've got to stop this thing now and grow up, you know. And I said, I want to be a poet. She went, you know, um, tell me one, and I, I mean, I've got to put it the way she put it, because she's talking, you know, she's an immigrant woman, struggling to survive, and all that kind of stuff. So you've got to put it in context. She says, you name, you're a black man growing up in England. You name one white man that you know that earned money from poetry. And I went, Bill. She went, who is Bill? I went, <laughs> Bill Shakespeare. She went, him dead long time, and you, dead <laughs> and you were dead too, you were dead of starving yourself. So, you know, it's that immigrant thing where you want your children to be better and do well. And and, um, and so a lot of adults around, around me at the time were kind of trying to put me off and say, come on, get real. Um, but I always knew what I wanted to do, and I just had to find a way of doing it. And I was really lucky in a sense. So what do I think of myself now? I think, okay, when I go into schools and children ask me if I have a message and advice for them, I always say, think for yourself. Listen to what your teachers say and apply, uh, apply your own intelligence and try and work out the answer for yourself or find another answer, whatever it is. Um, and as soon as I started to think for myself, I was pretty good at doing what I wanted to do 
because I had no role models. There was no performance poetry scene like there is now. There were no poets on television, really. Um, there was no Caribbean poetry, really. I remember years later meeting up with Linton Quady Johnson and Jean Breeze, and we were all doing our things separately, and we came together and realised that, you know, we were of the same mind. Um, but too many people follow the crowd. When I followed the crowd, as you will know, I was going to jail, I was getting in trouble, I was doing bad things. As soon as I started to think for myself, it was a liberation. And it was, it was, it sounds simple, think for yourself. Well, it's kind of hard because we're so conditioned. And as men, especially, we are so conditioned to kind of not talk about our feelings, to have this kind of warped relationship with women. Um, I mean, there's so many things that I had to untie in my head. But as soon as I started to think about myself, it was liberating. And I could become the poet that I wanted to be. Fabulous. And, and the thing is, speaking of liberation as well, um, you're not just, you know, it's not just about you writing poetry. You've also been fighting. You're like a freedom fighter. You were fighting for Mandela. You were fighting for the miners. You were, you know, um, you're famously known for the fact that you became friends with Mandela and um, you sort of formed a friendship. You worked with the Whalers and made a song as well about freeing South Africa. How, what was that experience like? And why did you really feel so strongly about it? I mean, I felt strongly about apartheid, but I, I was watching it rather than doing something. I talked about it, but didn't do anything. And you did. So well, why, were you, why did you feel so strongly? Well, it, 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 it's a, it may have been a bit naive at the time, or maybe it's not, I don't know. But I always felt that um, if you're going to write poetry and you're going to be out there in the community, then you should also do something about the things that you're talking about. Um, and this may sound a bit... I don't know if this is in the book, actually. I, I, I think it is, actually. I, I, I was When I was young, I wanted to start an organisation called... This may sound shocking to some people, but bear with me. The IRA. Right? The independent Rasta army, right? Right? Because right? I wanted to fight for freedom, and my hero as a kid was Angela Davis, you know. And the symbol of Angela Davis sometimes was just a fist, and you knew it was Angela Davis, or just the afro, you know. I remember I went to school, and I had um, on one trouser leg I had the Angela Davis afro, and on the other leg I had the fist. And the teacher said to me, "Take them off." in, you know, wipe them off or whatever. And I actually pulled my trousers down in front of the whole class. <laughs> and everybody went, That's, I mean, all the kids started laughing and the teacher said, I didn't mean take them off. <laughs> and I said, I was just doing what you told me. Um, because I really admired those freedom fighters. I didn't quite understand everything, but I just saw these really strong black people kind of, fighting for our rights. Muhammad Ali. Oh. I like boxing now with a kind of keep fit thing, but then it wasn't about the boxing with Muhammad Ali. It was about the things he would say when he came out to the ring. And he would talk about kind of civil rights and human rights and stuff like that. And I just always felt that I had to play my part. And I was really lucky, you know. Why, <laughs> whoever's... Could I ask whoever's got their mic, that's, um, if you could mute your mic, whoever you are. But thank you very much. <laughs> Sorry about um, that. No, it's all right. You said that might happen. Um, <laughs> um, so I've been really lucky that 
just recently I've been thinking about it and I think as I get to the age I get to and I just think, gosh, I'm really lucky. First of all, to have lived in an age of Mandela and Marley and some of the great intellectuals, I guess, you know, there were great intellectuals before my generation, but not only have I lived in this time, seeing the freedom of South Africa and another thing that's not so well known, but was close to my heart, the freedom of East Timor. Um, but I've got to know the, the, the figureheads, you know, the leaders like Mandela and, and other people. So I've just been really lucky, but I've always said that I've always managed to just stay myself, to be myself. Um, I've never worshipped any of those people. Um, I remember once um, when I was in my office in London, I had a massive argument with Nelson Mandela on the phone. And there were some people there and we slammed the phone down on each other. And they went, what? You just put the phone down on Nelson Mandela? It's a bit of a long story. And then we rang each other back and then we apologised and said, let's talk. And it was about a friend of mine. Well, he's the poet at his inauguration, a friend of mine called Mazwaki Mbouli, who was in prison wrongfully. It's a long story, but um, me and Mandela had a big argument about it. And so, you know, they were human beings. And sometimes when people looking back on the life of Malcolm X and they say, well, you know, he did this and he did that. We're all flawed. We've all made mistakes. We've all did, you know, you know, we've all did things that we regret. The thing in life is not to do them again, you know. Um, and so, yeah, I do feel blessed in that way. I, I, and sometimes when people say to me, you know, what are your great ambitions now? I feel really embarrassed because I don't really have any, you know. I want to do what I'm doing now, just do it better and better and better and write better books. And, and you know, there are still lots of struggles now. There's some, when it comes to women, for example, there are some things that women are talking about now. And I thought, God, we were talking about that in the 70s. Um, and, you know, we've talked about racism with police and on the street. And, you know, on, uh, back in the day, it was a national front, as you know. You know, you literally were walking down the street and a gang of skinheads would come behind you. Well, where have they gone? They've grown their hair, they've put on suits, and now they have positions of power, a lot of them. You know, so your racism... It's not from the boots of a kid on the street. Your racism comes from somebody sitting behind a desk in an office. It's administered to you, you know. Um, and that's more sinister. Because we're not in those spaces. We can't get into those places. Somebody's signing a piece of paper. And it's kind of having a deep, profound, negative effect on your life. And you can't get to them. I, I, definitely, I definitely agree with you on that. And yet the other thing is... It's like, because when it was the National Front and when it was, if somebody is out and out racist, at least you knew who they were. And I agree with you, it's, it, they are behind the desk. We can't see who you are. So it's, it's hidden. I remember. I'll tell you the story very quickly. I, rem I moved into a house in this London once and um, the guy next door came out and he said, look, I'm telling you now, mate, I'm a racist. He said, don't talk to me over the garden fence. You don't have to say good morning to me. He had two daughters. He said, don't talk to my daughters. You park your car there, I park my car here, blah, blah, blah. And everybody said, that's horrible. I went, actually, I like his honesty. You know, I like the fact that he just came out with it. 
and it's a bit of a long story, but his children were studying my work at school, right? So his children <laughs> would meet me in secret and go, you know, can we do an interview? We'll get real good brownie marks at school and stuff. And when he was really in need and none of his white friends would help him, I helped him. And by the time he was leaving, he left before me, he'd completely changed. So I, I like his honesty. And I kind of felt I almost had a project on him, you know. And now, if he would have said, um, oh, nice to see you, you know, I've got black friends, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. right. And then being really racist behind my back, but with no kind of honesty about his own racism, then that would have been harder to deal with, and he probably would have just left a racist, you know. But yeah. Actually, I'm missing out lots of stories, but eventually, because I helped him so many times and I helped his family, and he just got to know me as a person, and he saw me experience racism, and then he felt it because I was a human being, his view changed. I like that. I like that. That's such a lovely story. And, and it's, it's something that we need now. But I know that you... need you, honesty. Honesty. You know, it's like... <sighs> Sorry for ranting on about this, but well, not at all. When, when it comes to Black Lives Matter, for example, it's not for white people to think, um, oh, you know, they're talking about me, you know, white lives matter too and all that kind of stuff. I grew up sexist. You know, I grew up in a sexist household, right? Um, and I had lots of sexist traits. And then when I realised them, I didn't go to women and say, you know, you've got to do some workshops. I went to me and said, I've got to change. And I'm still working on it now. And sometimes it may be a minor thing. Sometimes I find myself, because I've got a loud, deep voice, talking over women. And I stop and I go, I'm really sorry, you know. Sometimes, you know, sometimes I'm just having to check myself. Doesn't mean I'm an evil person. I'm just trying to correct some of the things that I, um, um, what's the word? I um, got habits I got from my family and my, especially my dad and, and men around me. They were kind of, I inherited, that's the word I was looking for, kind of bad attitude. And as soon as I realised it was wrong, I've been on this lifelong quest to change it. Doesn't mean that I hate women, <laughs> you know, it just means I'm trying to make myself a better man. And, and as long as we're honest about it, then we can deal with it. Definitely. It's good to hear that you don't hate women. Thanks for that anyway. <laughs> no, but I do understand where you're coming from. But listen, in, in terms of that, as a man who I know you're really, really well travelled, um, I know that, have you got a minute to tell us about the Yugoslavia thing? Because you came, when it was a former Yugoslavia, you came really, became very big out there. How did that come about? Well, sometimes, a lot of artists will understand this. Sometimes you just get fame in a really obscure country that you've never been to or something for one reason or another. So I think um, um, uh, Norman Wisdom, for example, was big in Albania. Oh, goodness. I mean, he, just he just took off in Albania. Um, for me, it was Yugoslavia. Um, they just somehow got hold of my first album, Rasta at a time when they didn't really have reggae and it wasn't open. And the album just took off. So I went and did a tour there and it was massive. I mean, I still think to this day, apart from the festivals, festivals always have big crowds. Um, 
to this day, it's my biggest paying audience. I mean, it literally was people as far as the eye can see. Um, the really good tour. And then they released the album in Yugoslavia. And I became what I call, well, not just what I called, I, I became, in fact, a Yugoslavian millionaire. Wow. Uh, but it didn't mean much. I remember one day somebody, somebody um, paid me uh, some money and I, I, don't, I don't speak the local language and I had it translated and they said, oh, you know, it's, it's just about kind of um, um, about 60 pounds or something. And when it arrived, it arrived in about four suitcases. <laughs> I mean, right, so the value of the Yugoslavian Dino was like very low. So I was a Yugoslavian millionaire and it was quite a lot of money and I couldn't, in those days, you couldn't take it out. So I had to spend time there just spending money. It was really bizarre. I'd, I'd get a helicopter to go clubbing. And... <laughs> wow. Imagine somebody giving you, you know, I don't know, two million pounds now and saying, well, spend it quickly and then get out of the country, you know. I think, I definitely think I'd be able to do that. Wow. <laughs> what about living the life? But listen, what, have you got a favourite country? Because you have visited other countries. And I know that you were, I read somewhere that you were learning Mandarin. And should I say Ni Hao? Ni Hao. Ni Hao yeah, you were learning... <laughs> So do you have a favourite country? No. I mean, I have favourite countries for different things. I love the martial arts and the kind of spiritual culture of China. Which is a bit weird, because now Chinese don't even like martial arts and spiritual culture of China. I mean, they, they kind of become capitalists. Um, I like the music of South America, Brazil, Jamaica, um, you know, I like the food of India. Um, you know, it, uh, there's little bits of elements of different countries that I like. I wish I could just put them all into one and just bring them home to Lincolnshire. <laughs> that would be wonderful. Um, but, you know, they're, they're, it, now, it, different countries have their kind of uh, positives and then they also have their negatives. I go to some countries and I really like it and then I find something really bad about the country. I love China and then sometimes I see the thing the government do and I go, oh my gosh. And I, People say that when you visit a country, you know, you should talk to the taxi drivers and you'll get a view, a good view of what the country's like. I completely disagree. Taxi drivers will give you, on the whole, a very male view from their car you know, from the way they interact with people. Go and ask the women, and that's a different thing. I've been in country where the taxi driver said, oh, it's wonderful here, we got freedom to do this, we got freedom to do that. And then the first woman I talked to says, no, we can't do anything, you know, we've got to do this, we can only wear this, we can only do that. And I go, that's a different story. So, um, it's difficult, it's difficult to judge countries when you're just visiting them. I used to say something, which was, um, this is really funny. I don't know if I can talk about this on this. I can say this on this program. It's a family oh. show. I, I need to warn you. It's a family show. So. Oh, well, um, oh, well then. It's, it's not. It's not really horrible. But I'm. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let's move on, and hopefully we can, catch, we can catch you at a later stage in an evening, and you can share that story yeah. with us. But let's talk about. There's two words I've got to say to you, and I am a fan. I'm afraid of Peaky Blinders. I have to say these words to you. I watched Peaky Blinders and I didn't actually know that you were going to be in it. Mm. I was watching, saw a man come on, he looked like you. I kept looking, 
Isn't that No, I kept saying can't be. How on earth did you get a part in Peaky Blinders? I know you're a famous man, but how did that come about? I am a great fan of the show. Well, I think maybe apart from Killian Murphy, I mean, and maybe some of the guests that we have coming in, um, as the kind of permanent cast, I understand that I'm the only one that didn't do an audition. Wow. When, the, when, when Steve Knight was writing it, he knew that this part was for me, and it's based on a real character. There was this Jamaican character in Birmingham at the time. He'd fought with his friends in the, in the First World War. In those days, you'd have the African regiment and the Jamaican regiment and all that kind of stuff. But for some reason, this Jamaican guy fought with this battalion from Birmingham. He went back to Jamaica, and then he missed his friend so much that he came to Birmingham. And he became a kind of wandering, slightly off his head, priest wandering around the streets of Birmingham, preaching fire and damnation to fornicators and sinners and so. Um, and his name, his, actually real, his actual real name was Jimmy Jesus. Um, when we started to film the first episode, for some technical legal reason, we couldn't use the word Jimmy, Jesus. I don't know if it had to do with his family or something like that. So me and Killian kind of scratched our heads. And I think it was him that went, Jeremiah, we call you Jeremiah. And obviously they can't, nobody can copyright the name Jesus. So we kept that. So I was called Jeremiah Jesus. Um, and I remember doing the very first episode, the very first episode, almost the first scene, I think it's the second or third scene, but it's the first scene that we shot where Killian comes into town on a horse and I'm standing on the street and I'm preaching and he nods to me and I nod back. I remember filming that scene and then we sat down together and we said, um, a gangster drama set in Birmingham in the 1920s. It's not gonna take off, is it? <laughs> you know, and we were so wrong, it completely took off. Um, so I'm really proud, I'm literally, you, you, I've just come back from doing part of my piece in the next series. Wow, I, I look forward to it. I love it. So and I, I, hope some, I hope at some stage you'll let me meet Killian as well. We, we, we're all fans of all of you, so it's amazing. Yeah. But look, I wanna, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come to an end shortly. But I, I, there's two questions I want to ask you. One of them is that you are really well known for the fact that you turned down an OBE. Just tell me about that experience and why you did that. And it's obviously, whatever you do is always your choice, but what, what was that all about? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I think the fact that I'm known for it tells you something about it. Um, and I always kind of feel slightly embarrassed by it. Not because I'm proud that I turned it down, but that people know me for it because I consider it something that I didn't do. I didn't take the OBE. It's not something I achieved. It's something I didn't do. Um, people must understand that this comes out of war and empire, these medals. That's when they started. And the idea of the empire for me is, people may say we don't have an empire anymore, but that's, I don't even believe that's true. You know, we still have Falklands and we still have Gibraltar. And there's some places nearer to home that some, some people will, will argue are kind of colonies. but. The transatlantic slave trade is over now. But if there was a medal that said, that was called bluntly, you know, the, the order of British slavery, um, I wouldn't want that next to my name. 
And I don't want empire next to my name because they equal the same thing. You could not have had empire without slavery. So why would I want them to attach to my name? Now, I don't put down or don't criticise people that take it. Um, I can't understand why you would need to, but I can't not unhold my head up and then call myself a freedom fighter and a revolutionary. I just feel it would be hypocritical. Um, so, you know, I did it for my own conscience. The empire is no more. We don't need to use the word. And, you know, another follow-up question that people say is, well, if you didn't have the word empire, would you take it? And the answer to that is still no. I don't mind getting recognition from, you know, Ultravision TV and my peers and people like that. But I don't need it from the state. I don't need it from the state and I don't need it from the monarchy. And it's very interesting, you know, since I turned it down, there's been some people that have turned it down. And some of them say that they think about me when they do it. And even people that have accepted it say one of the first things they think about is me. People had rejected it before me, but I think I was the first person to reject it and articulate exactly why with a kind of big article in The Guardian. Um, so, you know, people have rejected it and people I've, I've been speaking to, people, sorry, I'll be about people have been offered it and then they call me or they speak to me and they say, Benjamin, should I? And I always say, well, it's up to you. I'm not going to tell you what to do. But it's worth saying that um, there are some people like Yasmin Alabaya Brown, um, you know her, the journalist. I don't, know yes. if you saw, I don't know if you saw what happened with me and her on Channel 4 News. Yeah, you, you, you really sorted her out. Well, not sorted well, the, her thing out. Was, the thing was, I mean, <clears throat> for those people that don't, didn't see, you know, we were in a debate about it. She had accepted the OBE. And she said to me something like, and I'm paraphrasing all this now, she said, well, she took it to inspire Asian girls. At the time, I was living in Newham. I was surrounded by Asian girls who looked up to Yasmin Ayabaya Brown they, without OBE or MBE. And I said to her, I said, all the Asian girls I know, they love you anyway. And in fact, in their eyes, you've gone down in their estimation for taking the OBE or worse to that effect. And I said, you don't need it. And she interrupted me. She went, Benjamin, stop, 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 stop. That's it. I'm, I'm giving it back. <laughs> and she wrote a really brilliant article about um, how do you give it back? Do you go to Buckingham Palace and wave to the Queen and say, can you, can you take this back? <laughs> Returns envelope, I think. Sorry? Return envelope. Yeah, something like that. Um, but I'm, I'm not here to persuade people. I'm just here to say to people, just you know, as artists, we don't need it. And if you're anti-imperialist, anti you certainly don't need that attached to your name. If you're against slavery and empire, you really shouldn't have it attached to your name. If you want it attached to you, then that's, that's your decision. But for me, I like to be able to look myself in the mirror every morning and say, I'm trying my best and I'm being true to myself. And I know that I wouldn't have been able to do that if I would have accepted the OBE. I've got the greatest respect for you because you made your own choice and that's that, good for you. Mm. My final question, because I'm going to put some, let the, the audience ask some questions, is the fact that you um, have lived a very healthy lifestyle. And not to say that um, any other lifestyle is still healthy, but I know that you're a vegan. And many moons ago, if you'd said you were a vegan, to my mum, that would have been that you just said that I'm an alien. 
So what is it like living life as a vegan? And you're quite self-sufficient as well. So tell us all about why you became Well, I went vegetarian when I was 11 years old. I had a conversation with my mother, and when I realised that the meat actually was an animal, I, so, for some reason I didn't think of it as an animal, and I was always a reluctant meat eater anyway. Like some kids don't chew their vegetables and don't want to eat it. Well, I, I was I was like that with meat. It just felt strange in my mouth. And then when I realised it was an animal, I just stopped and I said, I don't eat my friends. And um, a couple of years later, I was looking at some material about human beings and why we get milk and how we get milk and the fact that we have to keep the cow pregnant and milking at the same time and I always think my my veganism started as a kind of a kind of feminist act you know I just thought a female has a baby you take the baby away and the milk that should have been for the baby you take it and give it to give it to human beings and I just thought that doesn't make sense and um and when I read that human beings are the only animals to drink milk after infancy, uh, you know, we're the only animals to drink the milk of another animal. I mean, you can say your cat does it, but we make the cat do it. And some animals are doing it at extremes when, there's, when, it's, when they're really struggling to survive. But normally, you know, a cat doesn't go to a cow and say, can I have some milk? Um, but when I learned all that stuff, I just went vegan and I didn't know what the word was what the word meant. I just said, I'm not having any animal products. So I'm pretty proud of that in a way that, you know, it wasn't a fad, it wasn't a fashion. And in a way, veganism is really popular now. And I keep getting asked the question, you know, what do I think of the new vegans? Is it a trend? And I think for some people it will be a trend. But the thing is, you must know that um, a long time ago, well, not that long ago, a lot of people just bought food. They weren't looking at the label. They weren't thinking about what was in it. You know, people are more intelligent now. And they just look at the label. They want to think about their food. And even, I mean, some militant vegans, and I'm, I am a militant vegan, but there are some militant vegans that don't like when I say things like this. But even meat eaters now realize that they don't have to have meat in every meal. They can have meat once or twice a week. They're not going to die of starvation, you know. They're not going to die of a lack of meat. In the whole history of mankind, no one has ever died of a lack of meat. You know, you can die of a lack of protein and stuff like that, but you could do that if you were a vegan. <laughs> you know, um, and there are good vegans and bad vegans. I mean, my friend has got a vegan junk food shop, you know, it's real junk food, but it's vegan. And... and, and that's why you get some people, especially some, some of the younger cats in the black community who don't like the word vegan, they prefer plant-based. I understand that, but I've got no problem with the word vegan because I like vegan junk food sometimes. Every now, again, every now and again, I love greasy chips and I'm, I'm a sucker for cakes. I just have to have cake and chocolate every day. That's my addiction. Fair play. Uh, no, whatever whatever um, floats your boat, and I know that health as well. So, so fair play that you are a vegan, and, and you know, healthy eating is important even right now. Yeah, but um, I, I exercise every day. I gotta say that I exercise every day, um, and I meditate either still meditation or tai chi or yogic meditation every day, unless for some reason you know there's an emergency on or I can't. And and I just believe in this balance. So every now and again, I can have greasy chips. Uh, play. They say a little bit of what you fancy. 
And Benjamin, listen, I want to really thank you very much um, for, for answering all these questions. I mean, it's fabulous. We haven't even got enough time. I, there's about a million questions I want to ask you. But I'm going to put it out there to the audience because I know that somebody must want to ask you a question. It's, it's not possible that somebody does not want to ask you something. So can I put it out there? Does anyone want to ask Benjamin a question? If you do, say aye. Aye. <laughs> Brilliant. Hi. Is aye. it Tivin? Aye. Hi, Tivin. Well, have you got a question for Benjamin? Yes, yeah, so... Um... I remember listening to one of your um, documentaries before with someone else, can't remember who, um, but I remember you saying that you'd want to get buried in a, oh, I forgot what you call it now. Okay. <laughs> Not one of those with the baskets. No, <laughs> you want to get buried in a, in a tomb or was it? Did I say? No, sorry, you said you want to get buried in a, what do you call it, in a forest, sorry. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Can well, you elaborate on that for me? Well, no, this may sound a bit morbid, but when I was about 30, I organised my own funeral. And um, I saw a programme about how funeral businesses rip people off. And I looked at the law on burying, you know, being buried, and there's so many things that people don't realise about you know about being buried i mean for example people don't realize that if you own your house you can be buried in your own garden as long as it's six foot away from the building and six foot down um you know you don't have to be embalmed burying people is very bad for the environment if you're embalmed and you've got brass on the coughing and all that stuff and a lot of these funeral businesses make so much money um and they, they make a lot of the money because they pull the wool over people's eyes, telling them things that they need when they don't need it. And when I saw that program, I won't go into details, but I saw one thing that was a complete rip-off of this little old lady because she lost her husband. And, um, yeah, I won't go into detail, but she paid so much for the funeral that she didn't need to. And I just thought, that's not going to happen to me. And I went and organized my own funeral in a forest, paid for it. I'm going to be buried in a um, um, bamboo uh, uh, kind of shroud thing, coffin, and a tree will be planted. There'll be no headstone. And guess what? My stepfather, when he heard me, when he heard me doing this, he said, um, I want that too. And so I paid for it for him. And a couple of years ago, he passed away. So we had to go to the forest. I had to see the forest where I'm going to be buried. And it was lovely. I mean, it was really amazing. And, and it's out in the countryside. And, you know, I live in the countryside. But, you know, not many black people live in the countryside. And you never see big groups of them, right? This mass of black people descended on this woodland just outside Rugby. And... My mother was quite upset, actually, at first. She said, well, we want a cemetery, you know what I mean, with the headstone and the gravestone and, and the church in the background, you know what I mean? She's like, but then she saw it and she loved it. And I remember when we were leaving, we looked back and we saw all my nieces and nephews just playing in the meadows. And it was beautiful. And it was a really nice day, sunny day. And we went, what a nice funeral. <laughs> it's a weird thing to say, but what a nice funeral. And then my mum went home, and then she must have been thinking about it. And for two days later, she came back and she said, I want the same thing. You know, and I booked the same thing for her. And uh, so 
people don't like to talk about sex. Um, but it's, it's one of these things, you know, when people pass away, people are scratching their head. What would he have wanted? What did they want? You know, what shall we do? I've, like I said, since I was about 30 years old, I've said what I want. There's no debate about it. I always tell people to make a will as well. Even if you haven't got a lot of money, just say what your wishes are. Um, so that it doesn't leave your family in a state of confusion or even arguments. I've seen families argue when somebody has died. And, um, and I just think you've just got to be a responsible person. If you can be responsible about your life, you can be responsible about your death. I like that. Thank you very much. And Tibbon, thank you very much for um, your question. And, and Benjamin, I love the answer. I'm going to just, there's one question that's come up in the chat that I think is very important that I should ask you. Um, obviously, with your history of dyslexia, someone has put here, how would you inspire someone who's dyslexic to write? Because you've overcome so many um, challenges. How would you encourage somebody? Well, I always tell them that their story is important. The writing of the story is just a technique of getting the story down. And in dyslexia is not a mark of your intelligence. What is one of the things that we do in schools now and in universities that we use, I mean, like I said earlier, I'm not crazy about this idea of role models, but we show examples of people who were dyslexic and amazing. I mean, I'm not into making money, but Richard Branson is an obvious one. Definitely. He's read and write, um, but look how successful he's been. Einstein, for you know, I mean, look at the great idea that he's come up with. I mean, there are so many people. Dyslexia is just... We have to think that people have just taught themselves how to read and write. Read and writing is not a natural thing to do, to see a squiggle and recognise it as a, as, a, as a word. All the early languages were pictorial. You know, when you saw the writing, they were pictorial. I mean... You may have heard me say this before, but it's a rant I, I kind of bring out all the time because it's a fact. There's only one living language now that we speak and, 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 and it's written that you cannot be dyslexic in. And it's because it's characters, so it's Chinese. Um, all the early languages, and, it, and the only reason why that is there, because it's, it's a language that has survived and hasn't changed very much. But Egyptian, you know, early... I'm no linguist, you know, but all early languages when they were written down were pictorial. So even if you didn't understand the language speaking it, you could look at it and you could see the pictures and it would make sense. Oh, yeah, 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 so and so. I look at the Egyptology, e Egyptian writing, and I, and I, okay, I can't, it won't be precise, but I'll get the gist of it. Um, so that, that's our natural way of reading. <laughs> to have a squiggle that represents A, it's a bit weird. And then when we say it, you know what? Everybody knows what I mean when I say A. A, B, C. But we don't say A, pull. <laughs> you know? Um, and so I say to people, look, dyslexia is probably the default position of mankind anyway. Some people have just learned how to get away from dyslexia. Some of the greatest minds in the world have been dyslexic. If you have a story to tell, if you want to be creative, go for it. Because it's been proven that dyslexics tend to see the world slightly differently, more creatively, more inventively, 
use it to your advantage. And you really know good, that works. Really good advice. And, and my husband is dyslexic. He's just done his master's. Um, nothing stopped him. So it, it was discovered that he was dyslexic when he was at college. He'd gone through school struggling. Yes. And, well, uh, and that so, so, I, didn't, I didn't know I was dyslexic until I was about 21 or something. Yeah, my husband was like that. So it's really good advice. There's no stopping you guys. Let's take another question. Thank you very much for that question. Let's take another question. Does anyone else have a question? Say aye if you do. Aye. Uh, I, I did want hi. I did want to ask you, Benjamin. I I was lucky enough to um, watch a couple of your lectures. One of them was about a refugee boy. I've always wondered. Did you ever um find out what happened to the little boy? Because you said about the little boy that used to come to your garage. What happened to him? I did don't. Well, yeah, um, well, I know that he got help because the thing was um. If you know the story, yeah, you said you know the story. He was the boy that used to kind of watch me working on my car and then yeah. he told me a story and it was like quite horrific. And then I know that when I told the teacher that he's not being naughty and it's not that he's not paying attention, is that he's been traumatized and he needs counseling and needs help. I know that he went on to get help and he joined a group of um, a kind of organization that helped refugees with music and just, you know, teenagers. Okay. Doing teenage things, um, yeah. normal things, you know. Um, but the book is dedicate, dedicated to two boys, two twins actually, Million and Derrida, they're two Ethiopian boys. And um, amazingly, one of them I saw at a train station not long, I didn't even recognize him, he just came and he tapped me on the shoulder and I was like, well, do you want my autograph or what? And he was like, no, no, don't you remember me? And um, and he's doing like um, work with refugees and young people. Oh, you know brilliant. what I mean? I thought that was absolutely brilliant. You know that he's taken his experience and then he's helping other people. Yeah. Um. So, but the boy himself, I don't know about the boy who kind of really inspired it. But you know, I know he got better. Yeah. Yeah. No. Definitely. I just always wondered. Thanks, <laughs> yeah. Alex. Right. Thanks, Annette. That was a lovely question, a great question. Let's take one more question. Um, has anyone else got another question? I'm going to read, if you haven't got a question, I'm just going to read one more question out of the chat, Benjamin. It says, would you ever stand as a member of parliament? And if so, what party would you stand for? The answer to the first question is no. Um, I'm an I'm a anarchist. Um, that may sound, I think anarchism is a really un, misunderstood idea. People think of people just going crazy. But if you look at the kind of how long mankind has been on the earth, um, we've actually spent longer without governments than we did with governments, and governments just messed us up. Um, I believe we should have confidence and faith in ourselves to conduct our own politics and conduct, to conduct our own spirituality. And we have so far removed from that now that we can't imagine going back to that natural state. While we have governments and we have the system that we have to work with, I'm a realist, um, then, um, you know, I don't know about running for parliament, but I can actually say that I've always voted 
labour or greed.